I don't look at this as like lecturing. I don't look at this as us telling students this is the way to go. It's not us, you know, riffing about do we think judges are good or bad or where they're going or like I said, get off my lawn. But rather, if all people did, if they listened into us, would say, oh, that's that's an interesting. I'll think about that. And like it changes any perspective on the way of you debate. I feel like that's a success because what's not changing perspectives on debate is like the one on one Facebook threads that end up being 150 posts and like you can't follow them. first episode of Burden of Rejoinder, a new podcast from the 3NR. I am Bill Batterman, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Brian Manuel. Uh, Brian, how are you? I'm doing good, Bill. Great to, great to see you. Great to have this conversation we're going to put together today. And, you know, it's fantastic getting to catch up on you with you because we've had a 20-some year history, uh, and now we're getting back to getting back to our roots, talking about debate, and, you know. It's been a long time coming, and I'm glad we've been able to, you know, have this moment. So the three in our podcast for those of you who are uh, younger than, uh, I guess, uh, current high school students or several previous generations of high school students, you don't remember the three in our podcast. But we had a podcast at the three in R in the late aughts and early 2010s. So in the uh, very early part of the podcast era, not long after iPods were uh, marketed, uh, we stopped recording episodes. Uh, sometime around 2011 or 2012, uh, Scott Phillips, uh, who one of the founders of the 3NR, moved on to a new blog at HS Impact. Some of you might listen to the HS Impact uh, podcast, so read the HS Impact blog. Um, we started, we've decided to restart. I've been posting on the 3NR. Uh, Brian and I are going to try to do a podcast. We'll see how it goes. Our goal is to spark some interesting conversations between the two of us. And in the future, hopefully, we'll be inviting some guests on, uh, coaches, judges, alums, people to talk about. Uh, current controversies and debate about um, people to um, have uh, interesting perspectives about arguments in debate, about theoretical issues in debate, about some kind of community issues in debate as we navigate the still mid-pandemic transition of debate, hopefully eventually the post-pandemic transition out of debate. We thought it would be a good time to kind of restart a podcast. There are vanishingly few debate podcasts at the moment. And so uh, that's the motivation for this. Um, Brian, you have coached, uh, I mean, we, we're, we're the same age. Uh, we've both been coaching for, for more than 20 years now. You've coached at a wide variety of places. Um, you're currently at, at Edgemont. Why don't you uh, tell those of, uh, those of our listeners that aren't familiar with you, give us kind of your brief uh, coaching background. Um, where have you been? What are you up to? Yeah, like Bill said, I've, I've been coaching. Him and I are the same age. Uh, shockingly, uh, Bill and I debated with each other and been partners and we were roommates at one time. So we, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. I'm currently at Edgemont High School uh, in Scarsdale, New York. I'm also the director of policy debate out at Stanford University in California. I'm probably one of the few, maybe handful of people that exist that do both the high school and college debate on a regular basis in an administrative capacity. Prior to that, I've, you know, like Bill said, a lot of schools before me, I used to coach for the college preparatory school in Oakland, uh, Lakeland High School in Shrub Oak, New York. Chattahoochee High School in Atlanta, Georgia, Cathedral Prep in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, I coached for four years for my alma mater at Scranton High School. Uh, I've taught students internationally in China and Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Canada. So I have a lot of experience uh, in regards to teaching students of different backgrounds. I also differ a little bit from Bill in terms of I have a full service program. So I offer Lincoln-Douglas debate, public forum debate, policy debate, and now parliamentary debate. Uh, and in college, Stanford also has one of the world's premier parliamentary debate teams. So you might hear me add in different perspectives of what's happening and some of the things I might be talking about not, not be uh, sort of in fashion for what policy debate's talking about. But I think the perspective I give and the things I'm going to be talking about, I think will be centralized to kind of how to become better at debate. Uh, and also kind of a lot of the stuff we're going to be discussing is just not uh, only specific to policy debate. So if you have tried other events or you're just coming over to policy debate from another event, maybe I'll be able to kind of help 
kind of like very easily walk you into kind of what you're going to be hearing in, in a lot of our conversations. But it, but it's fantastic. I'm so glad we're able to get this back together. And uh, like I said, I love love chatting with Bill and a lot of the things that we've talked about over the last 20 years or so have helped influence a lot of the ways I look at debate, think about debate, and you know, glad we're able to get this back together. You want to pivot into talking about early topic stuff and in particular the the kind of process counterplan hegemony at yeah. the early t- topics. So uh, I guess why don't you describe uh, we were we were going over what to talk about the uh, ubiquity now trans topical ubiquity. I don't remember the first topic that this started on. I think it would have been it was definitely a Trump topic. I think maybe immigration, um, but the National Guard Association uncooperative federalism counterplan, the new trans topical generic counterplan. Um, similar kind of trans-topical generic counterplans have been recycled, guidance, document, counterplans, committee um, or commission uh, recommendation counterplans. Um, there's other variations of federalism-related counterplans, but kind of this whole uh, process counterplan industrial complex that has um, emerged in debate um, the last few years. What have you been kind of seeing? What are your um, What's your perspective on that? Um, and I guess maybe especially as you've seen it play out so far on the water topic. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, one of the things I brought up to you is how I wanted to try to tackle this topic to just bring it up to hear your opinions and thoughts and just kind of, you know, throw things back and forth. But I know last weekend when I had my students go in, like we had kind of discussed a little bit. I had read stuff over the summer and, you know, from the previous years. And, you know, my students at Kentucky, we go into rounds and everyone in C, I feel like we hit, had this idea of like some, and last year's topic as well, we'll just have like the National Governors Association. And then this year, it's just kind of like the states, you know, have the 50 states like basically condition or threaten the federal government to like not do future related action uh, unless the plan gets done. Um, And it's just like this general idea where I'm like always like interested in, in, in laughing about kind of like how these counterplans have gone along because, you know, people read them and they're just like very whimsical in the way that they, they read them in these debates, they're thrown out. The 2AC kind of answers them. And, you know, you say your normal stuff, like permutation, do both and, you know, permutation, do the counterplan. But then after that, it just kind of goes off the rails because there's no, nothing exists to kind of discuss any of this. Like there's no world in which the States threaten to not cooperate on some non-unknown future federal action because like unless you do a plan it's like you know the the world in which the states hold the federal government hostage is like non-existent i don't know what the empirical or historical examples of this are uh you can't point to them but like it's just weird the way debate works is that like this ends up becoming this like weird internal net benefit that like we must be adversarial rather than uh you know, an ally between each other, this idea of like uncooperative versus cooperative federalism. And then all of a sudden these debates happen on these like weird internal net benefits or weird internal net benefit. And my students are always struggling to be like, oh, how do we generate offense? Because it's tough because we all know in these, like these debates, you make the permutation. It's like, you know, it's similar to how the consultation counterplan works, how the recommend counterplan works, how the con-con counterplan works, et cetera. It's like, you make the permutation the block basically sits on the permutation. Uh, and then, you know, your whole goal of the 1AR has got to be just kind of like double down on the situation. But then it gets into this weird, like, technical debate of like defining the terms and, and things. And what I was trying to talk to my students about, and it was interesting, just like how little they kind of thought about this or, you know, had been referenced in, in previous sessions, uh, previous years of debate experience, but like the questions of like certainty, immediacy, uh, like what the evidence actually says uh, and how we stretch that, like what we were to say, truth to like the next level is sort of like getting out of control. But I don't think this is any different than getting out of control than when we were just like people to say the state's counterplan in general. Like, you know, back in the day when we used to have people who debated, they read like a page and a half long text of the state's counterplan that would have them do 150 different things. Uh, so you can't generate a solvency deficit. It's just weird that we've gotten to this place now where people read this like threaten to not do, and then with no literature, but the literature they read is so substantively out of touch with the, what their counterplan does. 
Uh, and these are like hugely successful strategies. Like these are not like not unsuccessful. They're, they're successful across the board. Uh, and like, I would say between the opening weekend and last year, if I were just to guess, it's probably upwards of like the rounds in which this was introduced in and gone from the two and R I'd probably say they won like 75% of the rounds. Uh, you might know a little bit, you know, have better data than I would. Uh, but I feel like every tournament I'm at, I heard someone dealing with this counter plan, like going into the two and R versus the two air, they're always substantively behind. Uh, and it's, it's wild to me to think about when I read all the evidence. And then also when I see judges ballots, how you vote on this at the end, because like it basically, you know, highlights what we just said about tech over truth. Cause I think this is like a perfect example of like tech over truth because like this has nothing to do. The evidence isn't even close. You know, I was reading evidence out loud the other day to my students and being like, I don't even understand like how this makes it out of the one and C, but not only the one and C, but it's like people's entire negative strategy has been based on this. The entire, I feel like a chunk of the CJR topic was, was based in this NGA counter plan in like tons of rounds. And once it starts winning, it just proliferates. And I feel this year already, it's already started to proliferate. You know, it's either NGA or it's this like even more relaxed version of it, which is just like the state's threat and people get away with just the maximum use of negative fiat. You know, if we, if we quote Seth Gannon, like his can of fiat, I mean, what's going on now is like, it's like, you know, the can is empty. You're spraying it everywhere. I mean, you could do anything you want, but the thing is, is this is this a birth of the recommend counter plan. And I've had teams wildly successful reading recommend it's come from the consult counter plan. It's come from the con con. It's just grown. It's like, this is like one of the multi-headed hydra of like this steal the aft counter plan, just add a thing onto it that you can't do. And then somehow, you know, mechanically, uh, make it competitive through these words in the topic that don't actually exist and these things in the topic that don't actually exist. And like judges are just hand over fist voting for it. It's just like, it's, it's, the numbers are astonishing when you look at the success rates of teams reading these counter plans. And on the water topic, I think it's like hugely disadvantageous to the affirmative in a world that these get read because it's already tough enough to find evidence that makes the distinction between federal action and state action in the context of water. So that like, should already inherently limit the size of the topic. But now when you make it in a world that the states can just threaten the federal government to do it and be like, the plan somehow, your permutation somehow cooperative, but the counter plan is somehow uncooperative based on just the written words uh, is like a whole another understanding of like debate that I think is like a bad precedent to be setting. Uh, but more importantly, is not one in which like anything kind of like anything in the literature or anything and just kind of a way debate happens should continue. And I think like, you know, having a discussion about how affirmative should approach this, I think is important. I think more so like, you know, probably gets us into much broader discussions of sort of fiat and permutation theory and stuff. But I think that the first weekend, if this is where we're at, usually it leads me to believe that like, it just goes more and more off the rails from here. Uh, and like I said, I don't have data to support this other than like just my history of being in debate. Uh, but I feel like it's a frightening thought of where this topic's going, because if this is already a huge component of it, like I said, I only pulled up maybe like 15 or 20 one in C's over the course of the weekend. And a huge chunk of them had some kind of counter plan that had some element of this in it. And that was always in the one in C. How many of those are in the two and R's is, is not clear to me, but I feel like more times than not, these are two in R strategies and they win a lot. And they definitely won because they won on CJR. Um, they might even won before that. And I'm sure it came from somewhere else that I don't even have the origins of. But I feel with this topic, it's definitely, especially in a world that we're trying to push affirmatives to be creative uh, and to be more in line with sort of what the literature talks about. I think having these counter plans in your arsenal, are, they're definitely detrimental to affirmatives. But I don't think they're actually helping get to like some of the better levels of engagement with being negative, I think, you know, I would rather hear a creative state's counter plan that fiat's a number of different things and have a debate about states doing something than the federal government doing it than the entire debate being centered on the question of like the state's threatened versus the federal government. Uh, and I do understand that some people's response to this is going to be, well, I should just get better at like debating permutations. But again, we get to this idea, what we talked about earlier, uh, which is that there's just so many things to have to prepare for. It's like, 
I can spend a week teaching permutation theory and, you know, permutation strategy and having kids do redos, but at the expense of what, like learning how to do it against that counter plan and then having to lose to like some manifestation of like a two page dates counter plan that does 50, 60,000 things uh, that we need to cut cards on and, and talk about. So it's just kind of hard because, you know, where do we go from here? And I just think these things are proliferating at a rapid rate. And it's like hard because people expect there to be cards and technical nuance and like depth that happens on all, all these arguments to answer something that like can't even come up with like a relatively solid one and C card that like even matches the counterplan text. And I think those burdens are so offset, uh, you know, they're so lopsided. And I'm sure you've judged these debates. I'm sure you've judged on panels in these debates where like the, the negative burden is so low to win a counterplan. The affirmative burden is so high to win a permutation that like, if you require affirmatives to do this, it's going to break debate at some point, because I don't know where a topic like this goes. If like the affirmative has to have evidence to beat you, but the negative doesn't have evidence to meet it. But I guess this gets just like solvency deficit or the solvency advocate questions and stuff like that. But it's frightening, I would say, to watch this be like the strategy coming out of the box because like it doesn't speak well to where the topic's headed if this is what we got the best out of week one uh i don't know what your opinions are on that yeah it's fascinating because it's a um i guess i uh, a couple of um things immediately come to mind i wrote down a couple of things that i want to talk about one is that there is a historical uh like history repeating itself element to this this is a version of what Walter Ulrich called the counter-procedure counter-plan, which had its heyday in the 1980s with the studies counter-plan, which uh, similarly broke debate during that era, where in response to an affirmative plan, the negative would counter-plan to say there should be an expert panel that should study the plan, and then the expert's recommendation should be uh, adopted. And the negative's argument was that the affirmative and the, intro, the introduction of evidence that they presented, like all the evidence they've accumulated in their recommendation should not be taken at face value. That shouldn't be like the reason that a policy is enacted. These are just high school or college students. Um, the research process was not rigorous. And so before the plan is implemented, there must be some rigorous scientific assessment of the plan. And so it, the, the counter procedure counter plan did not disagree with the plan. It didn't even take issue with the case of the affirmative. It simply took issue with the method of enactment or the method of making a decision about whether the plan should be enacted. And so in that sense, it sidestepped any obligation or burden for the negative to disagree with anything the affirmative said. It allowed the negative to propose a different sequence of events uh, that would cause passage of the plan. The affirmative did not have any sequence of events specified. It's just sort of implied by fiat or whatever. And so similar counterplans in that vein would be the referendum counterplan, and then eventually it evolved into the commission counterplans, blue ribbon panel counterplans, that kind of thing. And those have always um, sort of been around. But there's a there's kind of a persistent uh, desire by the negative to come up with counterplans that can agree entirely with the affirmative. And uh, Ulrich distinguished counter-procedure counterplans from counter-agent counterplans and counter-policy counterplans. Those are the two types of counterplans that in some sense, like a counter-agent counterplan, the state's counterplan, do the same plan, but through a different agent, the states instead of the federal government. Uh, in many ways that you know uh, usurps a lot of the affirmative's ground. It allows the negative to agree with a lot of the affirmative, but it does create the possibility of disagreement. And because it creates the possibility of disagreement, it creates the possibility of affirmative ground. And the negative doesn't want that. Same thing with a counter policy counter plan, you know, what we would now call an advantage counter plan, just do a different policy to solve the same advantage. Well, again, that creates a significant possibility of affirmative ground because the affirmative can say that their particular policy is necessary to solve the problem, or there's some unique advantage to their policy compared to the counterplans policy. The negative strategically always would like to put themselves in a position where there's really no possibility of affirmative ground, where the only affirmative ground that is left is the affirmative ground that the negative has given them. It's really the inverse of the thing that negatives will say in debates against non-traditional or critical affirmatives, where they would accuse the affirmative of only giving the negative concessionary ground or reactionary ground. The negative would like to do the same thing to the affirmative. So the NGA style counterplan and cooperative federalism, um, all of these types of counter procedure counterplans give the affirmative ground. But the only affirmative ground is, uh, number one, the plan is so unpopular that there is no possibility that it could be 
passed, even if a significant threat was made, even if the federal government was being held hostage by the states, it's so unpopular that it still can't pass, which then allows the negative to go for a politics DA or some other kind of backlash DA, election DA, whatever. Uh, Or they can impact turn the net benefit, um, but the impact turn to the net benefit has nothing to do with the 1AC. So it's essentially saying the affirmative ground is to introduce a new advantage in the 2AC impact turning the negative's net benefit, uh, and the negative got to choose what the net benefit is. So again, it's just reactionary or concessionary ground. So the motivation makes complete sense. It's This has happened at times throughout the history of debate, I would assume. Certainly, at least it happened in the 1980s. Um, I think in terms of what the affirmative has to do to respond, one uh, affirmative response that has kind of gotten us to this place or contributed to the development of this type of counterplan is the affirmative's uh, desire to exclude counterpolicy counterplans and to exclude counteragent counterplans by making their plan less and less specific, less and less precise, less and less clear, less and less choosing a direction. So an example, um, I didn't, I haven't seen a lot of uh, debates this year yet, or I haven't seen any, I didn't judge any debates yet, but just from looking at documents and stuff, um, an example would be a fracking affirmative. Uh, you know, you could write a fracking affirmative plan that banned fracking, maybe throughout the country, maybe on federal lands, whatever, but, you know, definitely banned fracking. You could also write an affirmative that uh, regulated you know, uh, wastewater from fracking operations or that regulated uh, pollution associated with ongoing fracking projects. Uh, affirmatives could choose one of those options and then have advantages that are clearly stemming from one of those two policies because those are distinct policies. Um, but a lot of affirmatives, because they don't want to have to answer counter policy counterplans or because they want to give themselves more room to answer counter agent counterplans, will not be clear. So they'll just regulate fracking. Well, does that mean that the plan bans fracking? Maybe. Does that mean that the plan allows fracking to continue but regulates pollution from fracking? Maybe. Uh, In response to that type of affirmative plan, the negative feels even more strongly that its only hope, its only strategic option is to develop this type of counter plan where the plan is irrelevant, where the specifics of the affirmative's case is irrelevant. They They can't figure out what it says. They can't be prepared to answer it. There are too many cases. The affirmative is too uh, vague. The affirmative is not committed to any particular uh, meaning of the plan. So therefore, we have to read this type of counterplan. So one thing that I don't think is effective for the affirmative is to try to keep making the plan more vague. That does work against certain other types of counterplans, but I think perversely, it actually encourages the negative to pursue this type of counterplan. The two things that I would encourage students to do to prepare against these types of counterplans, number one is what you were describing. I think it's worth it um, even though it's it's rather um, silly that this is a necessity in modern debate, but it's worth it to prepare and practice and rehearse and get some feedback about a uh, set of arguments that contest the competitiveness of this type of counterplay. So uh, to generally be able to um, mechanically kind of technique wise debate competition for counterplans that can be based on certainty, based on immediacy, based on counter procedure will pay off. It will be a worthwhile investment. You're not learning anything about the topic by doing that. You're learning just kind of arcane um, debate jargon. Um, and I guess to some to some extent, you're learning some analysis skills or whatever, some time management skills, some efficiency skills. Um, but spending time putting yourself in a position where you can feel confident that you have at least a relatively good shot of withstanding the barrage of negative competition arguments and theory arguments in the negative block in the 1AR, and then being able to deliver a persuasive two-error on that issue will be worthwhile. Uh, it's just a worthwhile investment of time. And this is just a purely technical game. It's just a purely technique and coverage-based game. That's why the negative wants to do this. Instead of having to learn about each particular case area, they can just specialize and learn about competition arguments and theory arguments, get good at them. They know that's what they're debating. It just becomes a checklist. The negative has the inherent structural advantage of getting that big chunk of time in the middle of the debate in the negative block. The 1AR is really hard. Uh, the 2NR can hopefully win that debate if they you know, check off all the check lock, uh, checklist check boxes. And so that's what the negative wants. One approach for the affirmative is just take them up on that and get better than them. I don't think, well, well, judges are generally uh, accepting, more accepting than I think they should be of the style of counter procedure, counter plan. I do think most judges in their heart of hearts are relatively uh, sympathetic to affirmatives in those debates because the counter plan is so clearly contrived, um, but they expect a certain degree of affirmative execution that many affirmatives are just incapable of, um, even among relatively skilled teams that are good at other arguments. So number one, I think, is invest the time and energy into learning that. It's not uh, it's not, it's not what I would encourage you to do in the abstract, but I think from a purely competitive perspective, it's useful. The second thing is to prepare a set of impact turn arguments. And I think the um, 
some of the teams that have been relying on this style of counterplan have pivoted from an uncooperative federalism counterplan to a cooperative federalism good version of the counterplan, um, which is perhaps in, in some ways even more contrived. Uh, but the reason is that uncooperative federalism in the present moment is probably a terrible idea. Uh, the type of uncooperative federalism we're seeing is, you know, the state of Texas uh, essentially nullifying Roe v. Wade, uh, the states of Texas and the Southeast and basically the um, the former Confederate states nullifying uh, the vaccine mandates, nullifying social distancing policies and other public health policies related to COVID, uh, the uh, preventing uh, important um, public health initiatives uh, more broadly now in response to uh, perceived federal government overreach. And so the fault lines in American politics uh, today are uh, certainly contrary to what we would typically think a negative would want to defend at the impact level. And so uncooperative federalism made a lot of sense during the Trump administration. That's when this evidence uh, was, much of it was written. That's when this argument was developed. It, with Trump in office, it's important for you know the Californias and Oregons and Washingtons and New Yorks of the uh, country to push back, to kind of maintain climate policies, to maintain worker protection policies, environmental protection policies, all that kind of stuff. They got to challenge the federal government on immigration. They got to challenge the federal government on uh, refugee policy, all of that kind of stuff. Um, now, with the federal government, at least for now, in the hands of the Democrats and with uh, Republican states being the kind of key movers on challenging the federal government, a states should threaten the federal government and hold it hostage to get their policy priorities accomplished argument is a lot less persuasive. And so I think that if the affirmative is prepared with a Biden administration kind of 2020 20, or 2021 era um, impact turn, that argument can be quite powerful. But obviously the negative can shift uh, and defend a different net benefit. So that's only a useful affirmative technique against the narrow, uh, specific, uncooperative federalism counterplan. Um, if, if other counterplans become ubiquitous or more popular, more common, then it's probably worth it to invest in that um, impact turn to that as well. But those are really, there's no, uh, the reason that these counterplans are popular is because there's no clear shortcut for the affirmative. There's no clear um, thing the affirmative can do to make them go away other than just beating them. And that has happened before. It happened to the study counterplan. It happened to the consultation counterplan. Those fell out of favor when affirmatives got better at debating the competition arguments and debating the theory arguments. I think it could happen again to these kind of procedure 2.0 counterplans, but the affirmative will have to invest the time. You can't just have a 2AC block. You have to really be ready to, to win the competition arguments in the 1AR and 2AR. And you can't just have a 2AC impact turn. You got to be prepared to win that impact turn in the one era and the two era. And if you are, then these counterplans become a lot less threatening. They become kind of as uh, routine for the affirmative to debate and defeat as they are for the negative to read and win. No, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, in regards to a lot of these things, I think the interesting component, I, I try to explain this to my kids, I feel like it's almost like a game of chicken. If you look at it, you know, the one AC is proposed and, you know, you propose what you do and, like I said, I think if we were to discuss the idea of a plan writing, it probably goes back to like more so, you know, saying less is saying more in regards to like a number of different arguments. So the agent counter plan, the critique, et cetera. Now we've gotten to this new form, which is like the plans that like say very little, but read the resolution. So then when you read T, they're like, well, we set the word in the plan. So like we're topical. And as a result, these things have caught on. We're like, now the plans are less and less. So it's like, okay, so you start the game of chicken. So you start driving, you have your vague plan. The other team starts driving toward you. They read their counter plan. And then all of a sudden they read their like uncooperative federalism counter plan or their study counter plan or their consult counter plan or their con-con counter plan. And now it's on you to kind of say like, you know, you'll make your two AC and then it's like, okay, we're going to keep driving on. We're, we're good. We don't think you have a, a reality. And then they come over with the block. And the next thing you know, there's definitions and cards and spin and all these cards that like may or may not even say what they're supposed to say, but they're kind of like highlighted in a way that makes it. And now the 1AR gets to that critical decision, which you said, which is like maybe the 2AC, you know, diversifies and they read some impact turns, they read some cooperative. And then the question becomes, what does the 1AR do? Uh, in light of all these things. And I feel the one AR moment is always at the where they try to aim for like, where do we think we have more ink and they have less ink? And then just try to go for like this. I always say like, you you try to outflank them. And I'm always like, you should never, I always tell my teams, I'm like, you need to run straight forward. Like you got to keep pushing the car, you know, 
straight on. And it's like, if we're talking about football metaphors, or sports metaphors, it's like, you got to do, this is like, I'm formation when I'm talking about, which is like, you're right that we could impact turn these things, but that gets the idea that like, if we have to find the impact turn to every argument that exists, like the research burden is, is astronomical for debate. And I think we get to this whole idea that like the breadth of argumentation far outstrips our capacity, student capacity to research. Can you and I sit home and cut cards on this because our job is to be coaches? Sure, we can do that. But like, what about if we just left it in the hands of the students? And many of us, especially those, the veteran coaches believe like students should be doing more of the work. Should we, do kids have time in the day to cut impact turns to every argument, no matter how, or, or do we concede kind of like you and I had this, have had this discussion before, do we now concede that like the uncooperative federalism as deployed a debate is a real argument if we cut impact turns to it? Or are, willing, are we willing to tell our students like this is actually real? Uh, and as a result, we need to cut real arguments. I'm, I'm, of the, I'm of the side that says, I don't want to start affirming arguments that I believe are not necessarily real arguments that are based in literature, but rather convoluted and put together by debate. Uh, and rather, I would say, let's push back on the permutation. So I always tell my teams, like, we just have to double down. If that means you have to get more speeches on it, I feel that the technical educational benefits of, of making, you know, cost-benefit analysis on the question of do these counterplans compete with your affirmative is way more valuable than cutting a couple of cards that they may or may not have answers on. And we start going down the rabbit hole of, you know, how how out in left field is your impact turned on cooperative federalism going to be like everything you said, I agree with like global health and, you know, vaccine mandates and abortion rights and all that. If we, if we follow this model and it, and it folds over, but then I feel like we'll get into some level, like, you know, like the con-con, like you and I used to have like really good answers to the con-con we debated back in the day. And then what happened is now it's a limited con-con that doesn't extend past the plan. And so now they'll start like making like, counterplans that get more specific and they'll counterplan out of your impact turns and modify the counterplan text. But like none of that will avoid the permutation. So I always think like, you're right. Thinking about it as like a, where would we want to be? I feel as far as getting into the nitty gritty uh, academically, if we were to be sitting in a room, I think talking in a classroom, we want to be talking about cooperative versus uncooperative models of federalism. And are they good or are they bad? I think competitively, students have to think through like the balance of what's best for you academically, what's best for your cost benefit, what we say is one of the reasons we do debate in the first place, and what are you going to be able to do to carry over to other counterplans? I think if you learn, you know, learn how to go for these permutations and learn competition theory in the context of beating these steal the affirmative at counterplans, uh, it will be more applicable for you to kind of bite off a larger bit of the, the breadth of argumentation I think we exist. And I think it's it's similar to topicality. We try to teach students early on in their career, like topicality, you know, the Ross Smith style of topicality with the circle. And like, you have what's outside the circle, what's inside the circle. And you have those that fall on the line of in between are the effectual extra T. But like, I don't even know if a circle exists anymore because we have not taught T as a restrictive tool to limit the topic because all of these things we allow to like eviscerate T. So I said before, like T isn't cool anymore. Like adherency is not cool anymore and, and things. So it's like, as a result, these like limiting interpret, like, so we have to have some limit on it. I think if we started acknowledging all these arguments people read are real and try to cut card for card on it, I think affirmatives are just always at a disadvantage because it does with the judge. So, you know, everything I've read, it's just like, and like I said, I think we're going to find that the counter plan is when they get really good at it, they're, we're going to have a whole moment where it's going to be the limited con-con. And like, now all of a sudden the con-con's like back in fashion during the Trump administration. Like, this is obviously a Trump-based counter plan. No evidence suggests that the state should, you know, actively be uncooperative with the federal government when it comes to like liberal policy over water. Uh, everything talks about like, doing more progressive policies for the people uh, to reduce poverty, to increase taxes or increase, you know, economic value, et cetera, when things are trying to get restricted for, you know, alternative means. But like, I think that, I think doubling down on the permutation, but I do think I, I agree with some of your, you know, root cause arguments here. The reason these counterpoints become fashionable is because affirmatives say less and affirmative that says less, like, Obviously, it's tougher because, like, what are the mechanisms you use? Are the mechanisms in the literature? If you just say, such you know, protect versus an actual form of protection, 
it's tough to debate those because like it could be anything. So you want to be every agent of the government. You want to be every mechanism under water protection. You want to be every type of a certain, you know, type of water. Uh, and just like on every topic, you want to be as much as you can be. And I think a lot of regards that's for flexibility against some of these counter plans, try to eliminate them from being read and also to have like multiple flexibility because you've got to be able to engage with critical argumentation. So the result is you need like an overly broad affirmative uh, that has a lot of moving parts. And I think it's definitely made the negative, you know, playground of arguments significantly broader. But I think it has to, you have to narrow it back down. And I think the skills you get from that permutation debate, um, you know, even in regards to like having to read some of these interpretations and definitions of like resolved, should, and, you know, talking about process counterplans, et cetera, being bad. Uh, I think they're more beneficial because I think if you were to say like, you know, how would you go out in public after you leave debate and want to talk about these? I think the result is you'd probably talk about it in the context of like some of these discussions aren't like meritful. Like there's no merit that comes from like this like nebulous discussion of should the states threaten versus should the federal government do it? Should the states threaten to not do something in the future if the federal government doesn't do something now versus the federal government doing it? That's not like, has no merit when it comes to like a conversation with the public. And I think some of these would be like, with people randomly trying to go out and define some of these technical words being like, oh no, actually our conversation does have merit because like we had a resolution and resolved means it had to be certain. And this con this idea is like, it's uncertain. People would just be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just gonna go walk on to the next thing. Like, I don't wanna sit and have a conversation with you if that's what we're gonna talk about. And I think that like micro mini discussions that we like to have and we think are good in debate I think actually are not like the type of public policy that we want to talk about. And I think we try to make them to be like, these are the conversations that are happening behind like closed doors and think tanks and government policymakers are having it. And it's like, that's not true at all. Like there are more conversations happening about like hypothetical nuclear war scenarios between the United States and Russia and the reality of those than they're having about any of the nuance of what these process counterplans are dealing with. And they're not happening in subcommittees. They're not happening amongst the you know, congressional staff writers that are writing legislation, they're not happening really anywhere, but in debate. And I think we need to move it out of that. I think the only way to do that is with the permutation. I think it, it has the most valuable skill set to provide you the largest, broadest applicability, I think, in debate. I think if we start to cut impact turns to this, even though competitively, I think that's the best route. I do think like competitively having yourself prepared to debate those probably are going to probably can give you more wins. I think you will be better off doing the I formation and kind of winning that these things aren't competitive. Because like I said, once you acknowledge something's real, it gets its own legs. And once it gets its own legs, you know, and it starts to walk, then that thing starts to run. And these, these counter plans are already running. Our goal is to have to like kind of cut them off at the legs and just say like, they're not real. I think that's the way you have to go about that. Yeah. The, uh, there's an article that uh, Anthony Trufinov wrote that um, I'll link to that's uh, he published it on the debate musings blog, the Lincoln Garrett oh, blog yeah. that is about uh, affirmative strategy against process counterplans. Um, not not exactly the, the counterplan that we're talking about, but a similar genre of process counterplan. And I think that's helpful for students to read. The uh, Ulrich article about counter procedure counterplans, I think, is useful for students to read. Um, I think I, the, there's one or two others that I'm thinking about that I'll um, track down and I'll include in the notes. But uh, that's definitely something that uh, students need to prioritize learning. The uh, it, it is sort of consistent with something that I often recommend to students, and it takes a while Sometimes this never clicks for students, but I think when it does click for a student, it makes a huge difference. And that is to stop thinking about our opponents have a block or our opponents are know about this argument uh, as a stop sign, as a warning, do not enter, as a war you know, warning, go in a different direction, take a detour. And instead, as sometimes just a necessary thing where you need to take up an opponent on whatever the issue is and just out debate them on it. And this is one of those situations because when the affirmative sees like the negative has a lot of blocks about this, they go for this counterplan all the time. They're going to say all this stuff in the negative block. Can't do it. Can't deal with it. Got to go in another direction. That other direction they choose is a losing direction sort of by design by the negative. And so sometimes and oftentimes uh, the fact that your opponent is prepared to debate something and has blocks on it is a good sign that that's an important argument and is something that you ought to pursue. It's an argument you ought to try to win because your opponents understand that if you win that argument, you win the debate. And so stop um, 
the the mindset that's like, wow, they just put up a three minute competition block. I got no chance of responding to that. Uh, and instead think, who they must know they're in a precarious spot if they had to put up three minutes of competition arguments. I bet a lot of this stuff is, is nonsense. I'm ready to take that apart and prove it to the judge. It'll be hard, but I can do it. And that'll be a valuable win. That'll be a rewarding win. And that mindset is important in this context. It's important in a lot of other similar contexts where uh, students or their coaches, whatever, where um, people in debate kind of strategically design arguments where there is one obvious problem with that argument, but then they put up a huge wall to try to protect themselves um, on that point. And students, especially early in their career, see that wall and they think there's no way I'm ever climbing over that wall. Um, But just like in sports where, uh, you know, you might initially see a certain defensive formation in football or basketball or whatever, and you just don't know what to do, or, you know, you start playing baseball, you can't hit the curveball. You can't just decide, all right, can't hit the curveball, opting out of hitting the curveball, because then you'll just get struck out on curveballs every time. You got to show that you can defeat the, that, whatever that is, you can, that you can overcome that wall in debate in 2021. One of those big walls is the ability to defeat process or counter procedure counter plans with competition and theory arguments. And so if you're listening and you're not, you don't feel like you're in that position, that's an important item to add to your to learn list. That's an important item um, to add to your arsenal of arguments that you can feel confident with. Um, and just remember that the the wall is built not because uh, the position is strong, but because that is a weakness of the position and they feel like the negative, it feels like they need to build that wall in order to have a chance of winning the debate. Yeah, I think I use a similar example. I mean, I talk to my students and I almost make it like if you think about it, like playing poker, or making wagers, uh, you know, if you both have hands and you think, you know, you have a decent hand. So you read your affirmative, you think you have a decent hand, uh, you know, but then all of a sudden the one and C, you know, they propose their counter plan. So they make like a normal bet. Well, you maybe call or think your hand's pretty strong. So you make like a minimum raise. If the if the next bet that comes out is like all in it, it signals two things. One is that like, they're so happy, like their hand is so strong that they don't want to be challenged. And they're just kind of like, we're letting you know, we think you have a strong hand. So we're going to counter it by showing you the strong hand. We're in many regards, like in poker, that's almost like its own tell, you know, and in regards to being like, you've overbet the pot. When people overbet the pot, it can only signal two things. One is you're so strong that you don't really know how to get more chips out of someone else, which means you didn't slow play or you don't want to maximize, you know, you don't want to, you want to block someone from getting cards, Uh, you know, so basically they want to stop you from gaining traction or they're weak. And the question, but the question it poses to you is, are you willing to put all your chips in and risk your, you know, match or tournament uh, on countering them? Or do you just kind of fold and go somewhere else and just be like, okay, I'll, I'll play another day. And I feel like a lot of times in debate, that ends up being the, the 2AC versus the block. And the 1AR is left with that weird decision, which is like, am I going to push all the chips in? And I think in, in the, against these counter plans, I think the what you said is true, which is that when they read a block, depending on how that block is read, you know, it signals the strength. Like Because arguments are strong arguments are strong arguments. You know, if you have a good argument, like we tell all our students, like, you know, I'm sure you do too, which is like, if you're strapped for time, just make the argument, you know, you're going to extend in the two AR because those arguments win. So you don't need to make 10 arguments. You only need to win one argument. So you pick the strongest argument. So like, we know arguments strength. Uh, And I feel like when you see these blocks and people start defining words, it's like, that's a tell. And the students, I think now, or their reaction to it is that they feel overwhelmed because they're like, we have to do the ticky tacky, which got to me to criticize in the beginning about this tech over truth thing is they think they have to answer like every argument that got made on this counter plan. It ends up becoming so overwhelming that they're not really sure where to go. So they end up dropping stuff. But instead of just focusing in, in like a laser on this one part, and I think at that point, you just counter them and you just kind of like re-raise because at that point, they know where the debate's going to be at. So that two in our choice is either kick the counter plan and go for somewhere else or they're going to go for the counter plan and we're going to have a debate on our hands and like hopefully if you made the right argument you're going to win but i think what it does is it exposes the negative because the negative goes for these internal net benefits that are like devastating to them if you go for a permutation because they don't serve as disadvantages to the plan their only advantage is the counter plan so these strategies in the block are so uh you know comprehensive on just this counter plan because 
Usually it's what you don't have cards to. So as a result, there's so many cards being read on the counter plan that like they're pot committed. So this team has to go for the counter plan and have to hope to do it. And it, like, you're in the driver's seat at that point. Cause like, if someone puts in 75, hundred percent of their chips, like the, then we all our cards are on the table. We have the permutation. You have like your entire block has been committed to doing this. You don't have a two and R cause you can't go for this disad cause the disad's only advantage to the, you know, you can't go for the advantage to your counter plan because it's not a disadvantage to the affirmative. And you have to go for the counter plan because you have no case arguments. So the result is like, you're, you're stuck. You've, you're pot committed and it's a tell. And the affirm has got to take advantage of that rather than weak. I think it's a sign of weakness and strength similar to maybe you remember, but on the, you know, the topical or on the transportation infrastructure topic, there used to be teams that read like topicality contentions to their affirmative. And I always felt like the neck, like that's a tell to the neck, like they are not T, but like only very, very few teams were willing to go for T because you feel like you're behind. But I just feel like those are tells. Those are not strengths. Like no 1AC should include topicality, just like no block should have to read a bunch of pieces of topicality evidence to prove that their counterplan is competitive. I just think those are like natural tells. And then it just comes down to like, am I a better debater than you? And it's like some regards you're going to lose regardless because you're not as good a debater, but at least you went for what I think are the solid arguments, like the ones you should be going for. And that strategy over time, I feel... If you said out of 100 debates, the negative went for the NGA or uncooperative federalism counterplan, the affirmative went for a well-executed permutation that answered line by line each part of the perme- of the responses for competition. Like, I do feel over time, if that's a balanced debate, the affirmative wins like eight, over 80% of the time. Two equally skilled debaters making the arguments they're supposed to make, 80 to 90% of the time, the affirmative is going to win that debate. And I think if you put it into a system like that and think about it, you know, these counterplans don't pass the laugh test. If you think about it in terms of equally engaged debaters, they're only winning because you're catching them off guard because of the strategy game. Uh, and AFs have to be better at kind of like, you know, being more efficient to like focus on what they need to win rather than getting lost. I said, it's very forest trees. So it's like, they're looking at all the trees. They're not seeing the forest. The forest is that the negative has shown their hand. And it's really about, can you capitalize or not? And it's no different than poker or any other strategy. It's just kind of playing the idea of like, you see the floor in basketball, you see the floor in hockey, you see the big picture. Like if you're a political strategist, like you see, like there are people who saw Biden victory through South Carolina that others laughed at. You know, there are people who know, like, you know, this is how the forest works and everyone else is looking at the trees. But guess what? Once the, you start clearing out the trees, there's only one way to go. And I think when students start doing that and they start looking at this game, especially if it's a strategy game, you know, the strategy is weak when the negative runs these arguments, especially when exposed to the idea that you've said the words perm do both, which have now equated to them having to read like 12 cards that to you should be the signal like, oh, it's time to push the pedal to the metal now. And now I'm going to go with it. And I think kids now are just flinching from it. So I think a lot of the stuff you were saying is good because I think maybe combining what you and I are saying, I think adding some of this element of impact turn, et cetera, might help the other team from erecting the wall so high because uh, it forces them to have to read some cards elsewhere. So if they're going to read, you know, their 10.6 card block against the perm, they might not be able to read that. They might only be able to read those quick definitions and move on because they're going to have to answer these impact turns. So it helps build the wall down. Uh, so I think the combination is probably both, but like I'm, I'm a little hesitant to jump all on board with impact turning. Cause I feel like once we start expressing these arguments are real, then all of a sudden we're like pot committed to like judges believe that like the burden now has become, if you're not ready to impact turn, then like you can't beat this counter plan. And I think the judges should always be like, oh, it was nice to see this team both like beat this team on a permutation and have these other impact turns they could have went for if that went wrong, uh, rather than the burden being like, well, I've judged these debates where teams have read these impact turns. So like, obviously this is a debate that should be had. So like, why didn't you impact turn? I think that's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unwilling to give up that ground and say we need to impact turn. But I do think it would help reduce how big the wall gets uh, and kind of leave that burden, especially for 70 to 80% of the debate community, the kids debating and policy debate. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, for students work looking to practice this, I think um, I've already suggested a couple articles. The Trufinov article explains the kind of intrinsic, or maybe it's not intrinsic, but the idea of an intrinsic permutation. 
Um, there's an article that Carly Watson put on the um, MSU debate blog that explains uh, different permutation, kind of a more sophisticated permutation derived from um, the debates from the last decade about the consultation counterplay um, that kind of walks you through some of the arguments and kind of how the affirmative response. It's kind of hard to um, explain in, in podcast form. But what I would suggest is take, uh, you know, look at the wiki, look at opponent speech documents from debates that you've been in or that your friends have been in or whatever that you can find, you know, get the negative, compile a bunch of the negatives blocks, the stuff they're saying on, on uh, theory arguments, the stuff they're saying against permutations. You'll notice a lot of commonality. There, there are a few camp files that you can download that'll have examples of that. Um, just kind of compile and organize all that and then just kind of go through it. Um, individually or with teammates, or if you have the benefit of a coach, you can do it with a coach as well. Um, kind of make sense of the negatives arguments. Why are they saying what they're saying? What does it mean? Um, what is the purpose of the arguments? What are the most important arguments? How do these arguments then get um, re-explained or how do they play out and get weighed in the 2NR? Uh, so kind of an analyze the negatives arguments and then just set up practice debates with yourself or with a teammate uh, or a friend from another school and just practice simulating it. So give the uh, the 2AC, have somebody read the block for the negative, then practice giving that 1AR, have somebody practice doing the 2NR, practice giving that 2AR. Um, and it's really, it, there's no shortcut. You just kind of have to go through it. You got to think about the arguments. Um, the If your immediate reaction to it is this is this is dense. This is complicated. I don't totally understand this. That's an appropriate reaction. It is complicated. There is a lot of shorthand. There is a lot of um, kind of meme type arguments where the negative will say something. And that really means more than what they're saying in the judge's mind or in, in the average judge's mind. And so it just sort of takes some time to study and unpack it. Um, but by practicing, by really um, going through the individual negative arguments one by one, and then especially by role-playing as the negative and practice uh, saying their side of the argument, it can help you understand like, oh, I get it. That's why they're reading these definitions or, you know, oh, I get it. You know, a lot of this is actually not important at all. This is the real uh, important argument. This is the thing they kind of have to win in order to win or, you know, I, oh, I get it now. I understand the relationship between the permutation arguments and the theory argument or whatever. Um, it, eventually you can get to that place where you feel um, similarly confident or comfortable debating those arguments as a negative is who debates these arguments all the time. And um, like, like Brian said, it's not, uh, uh, you're never going to get to the point where it's just a slam dunk every time. If, if you have a good opponent uh, and they make the debate, one of these sort of checklist technique coverage debates, sometimes they're going to beat you and that's okay, but you want to uh, give yourself the best chance in an evenly matched debate or a debate where your opponent is slightly better than you, that you can beat this whole genre of counterplan. And that will help you not just in the particular debate where the negative reads the NGA counterplan or in cooperative federalism, whatever, but it's also going to help you when they read the commission counterplan. It's going to help you when they read the referendum counterplan. It's going to help you when they read the expert commission counterplan or whatever, the blue ribbon commission counterplan, the recommendation from uh, whatever counterplan, um, that whole genre of counterplan, you'll now feel good in every debate, even like uh, you were saying, even if you don't have an impact turn, you still have a way to win the debate that you can feel comfortable with. So dig into it, practice it, read, dig into it again. Uh, but I think that's the, it's based on early returns from uh, early season tournaments. It certainly seems like that's a worthwhile use of your time. Because it helps. The, the thing I do, I try to tell students like in a, in a time that you are fighting for every minute, and between schoolwork and practice and your other extracurricular activities and applying to colleges and writing essays and having social time and, you know, spending time with friends, et cetera, how do you get the maximum return on your investment? I think, you know, everything we're saying here is, is important because, I mean, you know, you got to get the biggest bang for your buck, especially when you're affirmative, because everything we said earlier about like the breadth of argumentation how many things you have to prepare for, et cetera, that like this does have huge returns. Uh, every single type of counterplay. And then on the international topics, it's again, it against consult uh, and all those various counterplans that exist because they all deal with these questions of certainty, immediacy, uh, you know, how the plan is done. And it all defines these words that like really don't exist in the resolution. Uh, they're just kind of interpreted words that get there. And I think, I think you have to, you'll get maximum return on your buck. It's like I tell people, if you're good at debating like TUSFG framework early on, you can be good at sort of not having to cut a strategy against every type of non-traditional affirmative or every type of critical type argumentation. Cause there's some that you can just like win at the top level of being like, this is what debate's supposed to be about uh, and corner that off. I mean, 
some will disagree with me and be like, well, we shouldn't have debates about, you know, what we should debate about instead, like everything should be allowed. But like, as a metric tool of, you know, teaching for, for students in high school, especially if you're a coach who's new to the activity and you're thinking about how do I help my kids wrap their head around all this, Bill and I feel you that like, there is a lot to learn. And I do think it's the best is like, how does a student learn this? How does a teacher teach this? I think it's, you've got to be able to kind of compartmentalize huge chunks and teach skills that narrow down what's available as an argument to the negative. And like Bill said, you're going to lose our, you're going to lose debates. That's inevitable. There's going to be teams that are better than you. There are going to be judges who hear an argument differently. They're going to vote against you. But, you know, I said, if you have a hundred debates on this, I hope that if you were to learn how to do some of these things and effectively execute these arguments, you can win 80 of those hundred. Uh, so losing 20 is not bad. Cause I could tell you right now, uh, if you can have an 80% win percentage against these counter plans, you are going to be in very, very good shape come uh, later in your career, later in the season at any even given tournament. I mean, you know, if you win two out of three after baits, that doesn't, that puts you in a good position. Uh, you know, if you hear this in every half round winning that, that's less than that. Maybe some tournaments you're going to win all three or after baits. It lead, alleviates the burden on the negative side. Uh, but I do think they are skills that help in a number of different ways. And it, but what, more importantly than just the skill of this one thing, it helps you think about debate in a way that carries over to a whole bunch of other things. And we well, you'll see examples in everything we talk about where this single example will carry over to how you approach it, how you think about it how you have to contextualize it, how you have to execute it, those things become over. And it's a good way to kind of condition yourself to get those reps in because a lot of debate is reps. You know, you could be really good at the politics DA because you've gone for the politics DA 30 times and the affirmative team is only had to answer the politics DA three times. But if you've given, you know, 50 redos on going for the permutation against these counter plans that define certainty resolved and should to mean certain things, uh, and they steal the affirmative, and the other team has only gone for this counter plan like four or five times, uh, you've given, you know, 45 more speeches in practice going for something. You should It should be like the back of your hand. So like I said, going for it, it's a small thing, compartmentalized, small chunk, but it has huge return on investment. So it's like worthwhile to like put your time and effort into that uh, because it only takes like, you know, 90 seconds to two minutes to redo and you could do it a hundred times in the time it might take you to cut 30 impact turns or 30 pages impact turns. So if you think about time management and the world that you have limited time, this is a no brainer, but obviously what Bill suggested earlier, I agree with, if you have time to learn how to do this and cut impact turns, you will be way more effective going for the permutation because the two and R and two and C will not be able to spend enough time on being able to answer erect the wall against the permutation because they'll have to answer this other stuff that is just as uh, detrimental to them if it doesn't get answered. So, you know, if you have the time, do it all. If you have very little time and you're saying, what do I have to do if I have to do a little column A or a little column B, I'm saying do a little more of column A, focus on the permutation, do the redos for two minutes, make it short, make it sweet, make it really good. And, you know, hitting singles is just as effective as hitting home runs. And, you know, I would rather you be on base hitting singles and getting it right every time than I'd worry about having to do the whole package and be like, you know, an all-star uh, because you're going to win more debates with signals, sig singles, then you're definitely going to win with home runs. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the, I think that's just good sound advice. I mean, I think it's coming from two people who have way different experiences and have coached kids for the last 25 years. I mean, this has, the game hasn't changed that much. I mean, I think people have forgotten that the affirmative does have a lot of power in regards to speaking last and the way you frame things. And I think, you know, investing your time in that manner, I think is very, very valuable, especially early on in the year when we've seen a lot of negatives relying on these now, they're only going to rely on them more, especially when affirmatives start moving further away from the topic than they already are. of Burden of Rejoinder, the new 3NR podcast. Uh, on the next episode, we're going to discuss um, some additional topics. We'll, we'll uh, check in on the development of 
the new water topic after a few more tournaments have happened. We're going to take a look at the slate of topics that's proposed for next season. Um, you can see my thoughts on that on the 3NR. I had a post up um, about a week ago um, about that. Um, I'll get Brian's thoughts and we can talk about um, those topics. Early voting will be in early October. So we still got a little bit of time to finalize our decisions. Uh, if you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it in any of your uh, podcast applications of choice. Um, if you want to email us, you can email podcast at the3nr.com. Um, feel free to request uh, episode content, um, ask us questions, give us some feedback. Um, but we're looking to produce episodes approximately twice a month. We'll see how that schedule goes, but we'd love to have your feedback. And we appreciate uh, anyone who is out there and um, giving us a chance and, and checking in with us and listening to what we have to say. So until next time, thanks for listening. This is Burden of Rejoinder, a new podcast from 3 and